It's good to see you guys. My name is James. For those of you who don't know me, I lead the singles ministry here at the Heights. And it's my pleasure as we continue our series in the Psalms to lead you through a very short and a very dense and at first glance, very odd psalm. It's Psalm 133, so you can turn there now. Uh, if you have a digital Bible, you're boop, boop, beeping around. Uh, I'm going to be reading out of the English Standard Version, so feel free to click that translation. It'll make it a little easier to follow along. And if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles in the chairs in front of you. So if you point down to one, uh, somebody will pass it to you or maybe within reach. And what we're going to look at this morning is what makes God's people such a great place to be. And if you're visiting, you probably think that's a little self-serving. You're sitting there thinking, oh man, these Christians, they think they're so awesome. They're just going to sit around and talk about how great they are for the next 35 minutes. Maybe you've had run-ins with people who would consider themselves God's people. Uh, maybe you've seen or heard them do some stupid things. But what you have to understand is, so have we. You know, we who live week in and week out among the people of God, I mean, we have had, bump, we bump, we scrape, you know, we see each other and hear each other do some pretty dumb things. And this, that's why we need this sermon. That's why we need this word from Psalm 133. Because it may sound funny at first, but there are probably some of us, maybe even some in the room, who you know, walk around with genuine hurts or genuine disappointments that they've gotten from their experience with God's people. You know, maybe you've been lied to, gossiped about, betrayed. Maybe you've seen a congregation fall apart, and you don't really know how you feel about God's people. But the psalmist gives us something that we need to see, we need to understand in order to thrive among the people of God. And so we turn there now. I'm going to read Psalm 131, or excuse me, Psalm 133, starting at verse 1. It says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. That's God's word. And so just on a, uh, to hit on a little bit of context, just so that hopefully we get as much as we can out of Psalm 133, if you look at the top of your psalm, it'll probably say either a song or a psalm of ascent, or maybe a psalm or a song of degrees. Uh, and what that means is this. The, the people of Israel were uh, really a family. They all descended from one man. They were you know, one family that became a big family that became a nation. And God put them in this land, the promised land, and they were spread all across this kingdom. But God had commanded that the people would gather, gather every so often for these feasts and festivals. And while they were there, they would be reminded of God's favor and God's blessing uh, of God's call on their life. So this was something of a, a family reunion uh, and, and a worship service all rolled into one. And the place where that took place was at Jerusalem, which was up a, up a hill, up a, up a mountain. That's the Psalm of Ascent. They were ascending to Jerusalem where the temple was, and the temple was where God had given his greatest manifestation of his presence among that people. And these songs, the Psalm of Ascent, Psalms of Ascent, were the songs that they were intended to sing as they made their way to the feasts and to the festivals. And so you get to like the, the big Mac Daddy Psalm, Psalm 119, the one that we're all supposed to memorize this summer. Uh, and then the 15 after that, from 120 to 134, are Psalms of Ascent. They would sing these songs. And so with that context, we see two things before we even begin. One is God's command, and the other is the psalmist's invitation. And you probably look at this and you say, well, I don't see a command there. Really, he's only saying one thing, and he's just talking about how good something is. I mean, I don't, I don't see a command. But sometimes we know that sometimes a sentence means more than the actual words in the sentence, depending on context. 
Now imagine you're, you, you have a roommate and you're sitting in the living room and your roommate comes in and says, hey, uh, the sink is full of dishes again. Or uh, your spouse is in there balancing the checkbook, going through receipts or something. He comes in the, uh, the living room and says, you spent $45 on Starbucks this month. Or maybe the most familiar one, uh, your, your parent, a dad or mom, peeks their head in, a, in your door and says, the trash man's going to be here in 25 minutes. Now, did they, or are they just telling you these things for, you know, I mean, just your personal edification, just in case that question comes up on Jeopardy? <laughs> no, I mean, that's why you're like, no, he's saying, go take out the trash, you bum, let's go. You know, it's going to be, like, go do it. You know, go do some dishes. Quit spending all our money on Starbucks. We're broke. You know, make coffee in the kitchen. And so even though they're just saying these things, the context, you know, they, there's something intended. There's something, there's a command there. There's an imperative. Go do. And so as the Israelites are singing this song and they're on the way to God's house, so to speak. Imagine God's driving you to church this morning. On the way he's driving you to church, he looks, back, and he looks in the back seat, and it's okay, he's got it, he's got it, he doesn't have to look at the road. And while he's, while he's driving, he turns back and he looks at you, on the way here, on the way to worship, on the way to be with God's people, and he looks at you and he says, you know, it is really good and pleasant when my people dwell in unity. Is he just telling you that so you know? He is telling you so you know. But no, he's saying, on your way there, as we head there, do your part to make sure that happens. And so the first thing we see in the psalm is that command. But the second thing that we see is the psalmist's invitation. And it's all packed into the first word of the psalm, behold. When the psalmist says behold, he's, he's, he's holding it out and he's saying, okay, let's, let's take a closer look at this. And let's, let's look a little closer. I want you to see something here. Let's, let's investigate this. Why? Because we, we often come to the psalms with, with a feeling you know, Randy said when we started this sermon that what's covered in the Psalms, it, it covers everything that's covered everywhere else in the Bible. So why, why the repetition? I mean, God's not redundant. He does things for a reason. And the reason why is because there's that, that added element, right? There's that, that, that element of human experience, that emotion that you get from the psalmist. And so we come into the Psalms with an emotion. Often that's why we turn there. And we feel lost and we want to read a psalm where the psalmist felt lost. We, we feel afraid or excited or angry. And it, we, we find those emotions in the psalms and they resonate with us and it gives us some comfort to know that we're identified with. But since it's also inspired truth at the exact same time, it catches us in that experience and it leads us to truth. And so it takes us from experience through experience to truth and it teaches us how to think in that moment. And what I'd like to suggest to you this morning is that the opposite is also true. And while the Psalms can catch us in experience, lead us from and through experience to truth, it can also take us from truth to experience. And this is what I mean. Anybody who's ever been insulted, anybody who's ever had an awkward moment, anybody who's ever been excited about something, some of you are probably going on vacation in the next couple of weeks, and as it approaches, you think about it, you think about it, and you start to get more excited. Or maybe you know, you've been insulted in the past, somebody walks up to you and says something, and at first you go, oh, that hurts my feelings. But then you think about it a little more, and... They, shouldn't, they had no right to say that. And the more you think about it, we call it stewing on it. You know, oh, I wish they'd say it again. <laughs> so, well, what's happening? The more you think about it, the more that experience wells up. It's because one of the most common experiences in human existence is that your thinking, what you think about, the way you think, amplifies or even leads you to experience. And what the Psalms do is because they're so expressive, they give us the chance to see if we have been thinking long enough and deep enough about the truths of the Bible by allowing us to see, do I feel the same way about it the psalmist does? 
Like, oh, yeah, it's good and pleasant when people dwell in unity. That's great. Ah, but do you, do you feel that way about it? Do you feel where he's coming from right now? If not, he's, he's holding out. Behold, let's, let's look at this. Let's take a closer look until you, you see what I see, until you understand what I stand. Understand the words on the page to the degree that you, you get the exclamation points. And some scholars think that there's this double meaning in this term, you know, psalm of ascent. Because, yes, while they were physically going up a mountain, there's this, this likelihood that as they, they went up and as they traveled and they knew they were going to be in God's presence, they, were going to, they knew they were going to be around God's people, as they sang these songs and were reminded of these truths that there would have been something, there would have been something elevating inside. There would have been something ascending inside. You know, it's like if you've ever gone to a concert and on the way to the concert you play the artist's music, who you're going to see, just get stoked. And that's what the psalmist is inviting you to. He's saying, let's, let's look at that. Let's see this until you feel it. And there's four things that the psalmist, I believe, wants us to see in the psalm. For you avid note takers, I understand. I have my sermon notes from when I was 15 sitting up in my office right now. Um, so I'm going to make it really easy for you. I think the four things that the psalmist wants us to see is the goodness of togetherness, the source of togetherness, the purpose for togetherness, and the basis for togetherness. The goodness, source, purpose, and basis. And I'm going to use the word togetherness. I know it sounds kind of choppy and unpoetic, uh, but there's something happening here with the psalmist that I don't want us to miss. If we use the word unity, I think that we, we really focus on this idea of, you know, it's working well. You know, things are flowing, which we can appreciate. But the, the psalmist is really getting at more than that. The, the original rendering really is when brothers dwell together. And there's this idea of unity, but at the same time, the psalmist is just gawking at the fact that the group even exists. And I don't want us to miss that. And so from time to time, I'll pepper in the word togetherness. And it's the idea that the group is there, man, and it's working. And the first thing that the psalmist shows us is the goodness of togetherness. He starts off in verse 1, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And it seems like kind of a, a, an easy point. You know, it kind of seems like, you know, well, that's obvious. You know, we all have different places in life where we belong. We have, you know, our relationships, our work. And, I mean, it's, it's good when there's unity anywhere, right? I mean, that's... that's some of the more profound you know, truths of the Bible. We, we kind of get that. But at the same time, we fight it. Everywhere. One thing that's always been very interesting to me, if you watch any news coverage of any major American crisis, you know, if you go back and look at the news coverage of a, of a 9-11 or a, a Sandy Hook, a Hurricane Sandy, the, the tornadoes in Oklahoma, the Boston bombing, eventually, inevitably, You'll look through the coverage, and whether it be in the newspaper or in, in, on TV, eventually you'll see them isolate one event within that, that happening, that occurrence, that crisis, and they'll draw on some form of this theme, Americans helping Americans, or, you know, people helping people, Americans standing together. It's because we, we as Americans have a story. It starts way back with the Founding Fathers and continues on until today. And one of the, the ideals that's deeply embedded in that story is this idea, united we stand. It's, just, it's, just in, it's ingrained in our story to the point where if, you, if that idea comes up at the right time, it, just, it resonates with us. It gets us going. It's like, yeah, you know, we're, we're united we stand. Yeah, you know, rounds of applause and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, we're always fighting. Like, if you think about it, when the, when the news isn't covering some crisis like that and drawing on the same, usually it's talking about something that we're fighting over. You know, you go on the internet, you go look at Facebook, YouTube, blogs, or you just any place where people are interacting, especially anonymously, you'll see some of the most hateful, bigoted, racist, sexist, just some of the worst stuff you can think of. And over small stuff, that's not even the important stuff. 
That's to say nothing of, you know, politics and religion, business, the neighbor's tree branches hanging over your side of the fence. That's, we come back to this idea, but we are always fighting. So, so, why, do we, so why do we return to this, this thought? Because I mean, well, it's a comforting thought, but why? If it's so contrary to how we typically live, to our, our, our daily interactions, if we fight this so much, why does it resonate with us so much? I'll tell you why. It's because you were made for it, sin broke it, and you're homesick. Even when you don't know that's the case. You, the Bible says that you were made for a perfect relationship with God and with people. Sin broke both. And that, that desire, that desire to, to belong, that desire to, to experience that togetherness, to be in a group of people and for it to work, it's a homesickness. Even if you didn't even know that's what you were made for, even if it's the first time you've ever hearing any truth from the Bible, when you experience that, you're longing for something you didn't even know was the case. And so with that, two of the places that we look for blessedness, as Psalm 1 would say, or happiness, is by getting in with a person or a group. You know, a person can be a romantic relationship or just a, a good friend, an association with somebody in power. Or, you know, a group, it can be a, a, a clique, it can be the popular kids, it can be a sports team, it can be a party, association, whatever. But even when we get in those groups, there's dysfunction. It just doesn't work. And so the big question becomes, is there anything that can band us together? Is there any source of togetherness? Anything that brings us together in such a way that it completely overshadows all of our differences and all of our disagreements? And that question splits the, the world in half. And you have the lighter half, <laughs> the naive people, who say, yeah, yeah, we could do that. You know, if we just really try, we could band together, hold hands across the world. World peace, as the pageanteers say. And then probably most of us fall on the other side of that line. We're a little more cynical and saying, no. no. People are people. Such a world could never exist. But the psalmist says, ah, but see what kind of good it is when God's people dwell together in unity. And the first thing that he points to is that because the source of their unity is God. And he continues on in, in, in verse 2. And this is the part where we get to, uh, this is the part where we get to Aaron's oily beard. Um, and this is probably not an expression that we use too often. I don't know, some of you probably from some more rural areas. How good was it? About as good as Aaron's oily beard, I guess. <laughs> my, uh, my wife and I went to a concert a couple days ago to see uh, Chris August. And uh, he's going to be here with Big Daddy Weave when they come. And, you know, so we went to the concert, and we were hanging out with uh, her family, her parents. And uh, I was standing over with uh, her dad, my father-in-law, and his brother. And they were asking me, you know, what, on Sunday you're preaching. What, what text are you preaching on? It's Psalm 133. So they pulled out their phone, and, you know, they went down Psalm 133, and they read it together, and it's short, so they finished it fast. And so my, I don't know, uncle-in-law, I guess, looks at me and says, so you're preaching about Aaron's beard? I said, to the glory of God. <laughs> Because, I mean, you look at it, and at first it's just like, man, like, you, don't, you might not know what he's saying, but, I mean, there's just this language here. I mean, it's, and that's the reason why I wanted to study this psalm. I wanted to figure out what this guy is getting at, because you get to it, and it's, you know, and it, it's like the precious oil on the head running down onto the beard, running down on the beard of Aaron, running down the collar of his robes. I mean, it's just, that's poetic, man. That's poetry. It's not even written in this language. It just, it just sounds good. And the question is, what is he getting at? And there's a couple things that he's doing. But the first thing that he's doing when he says that, what God's people like is like this, this oil coming down the beard. It's like the dew on the Mount Hermon. 
is there's this wordplay going on there that, that sometimes you can miss in some of the translation, but there's, there's a, a rendering of it that uh, an Old Testament scholar named Leslie Allen provides. And it's, it's, I think it's kind of helpful. And this is how he, he renders that part of this chapter. He says this, It is like sweet oil upon the head, coming down on the beard, Aaron's beard, which came down over his body. It is like the dew of Hermon, which comes down upon the mountains of Zion. And there's this repetition, this, this, it came down, it's coming down, it comes down. And the point that the, the psalmist is making is that unity, just like the oil is coming down this head, just like the dew comes down this mountain, unity is something that comes down from the presence of God. It's like it's flowing down from the mountains of Zion. It's a gift bestowed rather than contrived, as Derek Kidner puts it. The point that he's making is the thing that bands us all together as God's people is, is God himself. He's the glue that holds it all together. And we all have, we've, we've experienced this in different places. You know, most of us have usually probably been a part of some kind of group where there's a, you know, one or two people, maybe a person or a person that holds that group together. You know, when that group gets together, they kind of are the, are the common tie. And when that person or persons isn't around, the group doesn't get together so much. There's this time where um, I can remember... My wife and I, when we were just dating, were, were over at my parents' house, and we were all hanging out, and my, my sister was there, and she had some of her friends. And my sister's younger than me. She was in high school. Uh, and so she had a little group of her friends there, and we were all hanging out. We're having a good time. You know, we're just relaxing and getting to know each other and all that kind of stuff. And then a pocket of the, most of those friends, my sister and her friends, go upstairs leaving one kid on the couch. And so we're all just chatting with him, getting to know him. He seemed like a pretty cool guy. He actually had a pretty interesting story just about his life. And so we're talking to him. We're getting to know him. And then one of the friends comes downstairs and leans over the rail to ask him a question. I think that they were just, I don't know, getting something ready so they could leave. But he leans over the rail and he asks that kid, that one kid that's left, a question. And he's getting ready to turn back and leave. And the kid that's sitting on the couch says, oh, no, oh, wait. Guy's getting ready to go upstairs. What? Oh, uh, can you come back down, please? I'm uncomfortable. And I'm thinking, dude, we can hear you. (laughs) If it wasn't uncomfortable before, it sure is now, right? But what happened? What happened? That person that we all had in common, that common link that brought us all together, left and it just didn't work as well anymore. And that's what the psalmist is saying, saying that God is the link that brings us all together. He's the thing that we all have in common. And the big application point of that is, If we want to experience togetherness best, he has to be in the middle of everything. And we call that worship. If we want to really experience that togetherness, he has to be in the middle of all of it because he's what really ultimately brings us together. Aside from him, we're all very different. And when when we abandon him, we don't do so well with each other. Some of you know firsthand, the rest of you can read first and second Kings. It shows you over and over again when God's people abandon him, they do really poorly with each other. It's because he's, he's the source of unity. And I, I wrote origin to begin with, but I thought about it. You know, an origin, that's where something starts and it kind of leaves there. A source constantly puts out, doesn't it? That's how it is with God. We need to constantly cling to him and he brings us together. He's the source of unity and it's good and it's pleasant. The next thing that the psalmist shows us is the purpose of togetherness. If you look down at, a, well, I guess relook at verse two and three, what's being described there is an anointing. And the two purposes that he gives us for unity, for togetherness, is priesting 
and provision. And priesting probably sounds a little weird because I'm trying to take the word priest and turn it into a, a verb, something you do. And what he's describing in verse two is an anointing. And in the Old Testament, God had, I mean, you know, Moses, you know, let my people go and all that kind of stuff. They come out of Egypt and God takes Moses' right-hand man, Aaron, and he takes him and he anoints him as a priest. And the priests were, were, were intended to act as a mediator between God and the people. They would be stewards of God's grace and his favor and at times his judgment. And there were the go-between between God and the people. And the picture of that, the way God illustrated, showed that setting apart, was by anointing the pouring of oil over the head. And what the psalmist is saying, he's drawing on what, what God told Moses in Exodus 19. God told Moses, in the same way that I've set him apart, if you guys will walk with me, and you guys will walk in my ways, obey my commands, I'm going to make you an entire kingdom of priests. The holy nation. I'm going, to make, I'm going to make it so God's people, his design, his purpose behind togetherness is for us to share God, his, his will, and his ways with the world. So the first purpose in togetherness is priesting. The second is provision. You get to this part about the, the dew of Hermon, the dew on the mountain. You probably didn't think that your favorite, uh, your favorite soda was in the Bible, huh? Mountain dew. And what he's talking about here, Hermon was the tallest mountain in Israel. It stood about 10,000 feet above sea level. And it was the midst of a place that went through just tremendous dry seasons. I mean, it, from May to October, it was not a drop of water. And everything around it was just dead and dusty and just absolutely lifeless. But in the middle of all that, Hermon was always green. It always had green stuff on it. Why? Because of its altitude and because it had snow that accumulated on the top. It was known for this dew that would run down and it sustained everything on the mountain. It provided for everything on the mountain. In the same way the psalms is telling us, man, togetherness, when we, when we dwell together in unity, that's a means of God's provision in your life. And that's how God meets needs. He meets, he meets physical needs, social needs, emotional needs, spiritual needs, intellectual needs. I once had a huge God question. There was this time in college where I was just wrestling with this, this, this idea, this thought about God's character. And it was just causing me a great deal of just turmoil. And so I'm going to, I mean, I'm going to God. I'm reading his word and I'm flipping through. And I'm thinking, okay, God, answer this question. What's, what's the deal with this? I, I, I need an answer here. You know, I'm praying. I'm like, God, just beam the answer to my brain. Help me out. Let me deal with this. And so I wrestled with this for just, I mean, months and months and months. And then all of a sudden, one day, it was very simply, very suddenly, very unexpectedly, just destroyed. The, 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 the question was answered, the problem was solved, and it, it was solved by one of just the most ordinary friends I have. Not a Bible scholar, not brilliant. Well, no, he, I love him. He's, he's smart. Um, but I mean, he wasn't any kind of Bible. He wasn't a pastor. It was just this regular guy. And this is the, the, the bit of, this is the nugget of wisdom. This is the, the, the theology that he gave me that solved this big question I had. It was, Jesus was God, and he was perfect. Profound, right? It's like, that's like Bible 101. But I, I just didn't, I didn't see the connection between that answer and this new question that I had. And he brought that, that little simple bit of truth to bear on this new question. But what happened there? Now, I've been praying for God to answer this question. What happened? God ministered to me, but at the same time, he showed me a means of doing so that I had grossly overlooked his people. It's because one of the purposes that he has in togetherness is not just priesting, but provision. And the big application there, the big implication there, is you can't be floating around God's people 
for that to happen. You know, being floating around Hermon, you're not going to get that much water. You need to plunge yourself into God's people, be connected, be known, and know people. You know, be, let people have people who know your business. I know a lot of people, in, I mean, this is a big church, a lot of people in this room. How many people in this room, in this church, know your business? Are you deeply connected to in a way that God can reach out, priest, and provide? Because it's good, it's pleasant, it's one of his purposes. And the last thing that the psalmist shows us is the basis of togetherness. If you look at the last line in the, in the psalm, it says, it's like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. Zion, this is the, the word that expressed God's presence up there in the mountain at the temple. It's like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. And we get the reason for, for God providing this togetherness, for God creating a people for such great purposes. It's just because you know, his blessing, our happiness, that's just what he's like. For there he has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. And it's unlike any other group that you're a part of, because up until this point, you might have said, well, yeah, I experienced togetherness in other groups. You know, I have this, this, this family, I have this group, I have this you know, work, this job. I, I have this group of people that I experience this with. But in just about any other group that you're a part of, just about any other group you're a part of, you're accepted into the group on the basis of what you bring to the table. It's absolutely true of your job. It's true of most of your hobbies. If you're on a sports team and you have just, you know, a band of brothers or, you know, a sports team of girls, something, something of sisters, uh, and you're, you, you just have great camaraderie on that team, what happens if you sustain an injury? What happens if, I don't know, you, you get replaced on that team? You, you know, somebody comes on that team who's better than you at your role. You, know, you get accepted into the popular kids. And what happens when you can't afford the sneakers anymore? You know? God creates a place where you are accepted, loved, and nurtured just because. That's what he's like. And one other note here, something easy to pass over in this last line. It says, for there the Lord has commanded his blessing, commanded the blessing. He tells us that the means of God bestowing his blessings is the commands. I'm always so, I'm always so confused about like, people who come to church, visit church, maybe hear a lesson from the Bible, and are so scandalized by the things that they are. You know, you talk about money, you talk about the commands, you have these people, oh, the Bible, all these rules. We do the same thing all the time, all the time. Anytime we come together, we always lay down rules so that we can get the junk out of the way and we can enjoy each other and what brought the group together. Now, it's the summertime. Some of you have probably been visiting the pool this summer, and when you go to the pool, what's it say? You know, don't run. Don't run. Don't dive in the shallow end. Why is somebody trying to rain on your parade? No, it's because if somebody does either one of those things, eventually somebody's going to pop, you know, crack their little peanut, and you're not going to be having fun anymore. It's going gonna, it's gonna to put a damper on your good time. And we talked about two of the places where we look for happiness is, is in relationships. Aren't there rules for relationships? For groups? Aren't there things you don't do in relationships? For the sake of the good, the enjoyment of the relationship? Why would a relationship with God and association with his people be any different? God commands so that he can bless. And we do the same thing all the time. And for the psalmist and for the Israelites at this time, one of the big pieces of that blessing is that they would enjoy life and the good land that God had delivered them into. That generation after generation, there would be this perpetual blessing governed by this David-like king. It's actually described at length in the previous psalm. Go, we don't have time to look at it real quick, uh, but you go home and look at Psalm 132, and it describes the expectation and the hope 
of that blessing. But what the Bible also tells us, that blessing wasn't just for Israel. We actually see in the prophets, I'll, re- I'll, read, uh, I'll read a little from uh, Isaiah 2. Isaiah 2, starting in verse 2. And this is, this is how Isaiah expects this to happen. It says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains. He's not talking about altitude. And shall be lifted up above the hills, and the nations shall flow into it. And many people, peoples, not people, peoples, shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, and neither shall they learn war anymore. And it's the prophet's expectation that this blessing that God has bestowed is going to overflow. And it's going to create a togetherness that encompasses every tribe and every nation. And this is where the naive people cheer and the cynical people sneer. You know, that part of us that longs, that part of us that, that, that knows we're meant for this, that wants this to happen, you know, asks, you know, could I hope? You know, could, could this happen? And that part of us that is just aware that things are, are broken, that things don't work, says, you know, that, no, that's naive. That could never happen. People are people. Such a place could never exist. But it does. It will. And it already does. Because God's grace came down, 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 and his name was Jesus. And he came proclaiming a, a, a kingdom, a people. And he delivered commands. Nobody had ever seen anybody speak with that kind of authority. He upped the ante on the commands, didn't he? He told us that we don't need to just have, you know, we don't just need to live right. We need to have a right heart. Wouldn't it be good to be a part of a group where people's hearts were right? Where you could trust people's motives and their intentions? And look at the Sermon on the Mount. Go to Matthew 5, not now, go to Matthew 5 at some point. And what does Jesus do right before he puts down these commands? He announces blessing, blessing and commands, commands and blessings. Blessings on all kinds of people, blessings on the least likely kind of people. You know, blessed are those who, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. There's blessing there. You know, poor in spirit, are you poor in spirit? There's blessing there. Are you mourning? There's blessing there. And what you have in Jesus, when he came down, 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 is the source of our unity. He said, when I, he came down and he said, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. He creates a new people, a family that, that, that are banded together by faith in him. And he tells Peter, on the basis of who I am, I'm going to build a group. I'm going to build a church that has the kind of togetherness that hell can't even break apart. And he fulfills the purpose in our togetherness. He's the great high priest. He's the, 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 the true Aaron. He's the, the Christos, the anointed one. The true high priest who, who mediates between us and God, who closes that gap so that through him in his name, we can go straight to God. We can have straight access to the Father. And then he fills his people up with his spirit and has his word abiding in them so that any moment he can reach out through them to minister to and touch the lives of many. And what you have in Jesus is the, the divine lawgiver and the perfect human law keeper. Kept the law perfectly, kept the commands perfectly, but he wasn't blessed for it. He was cursed for it. It's because he was taking on your curse. Even though he lived the life you should have lived, he died the death you should have died, so that when we mess up, 
we sink our hope in him, even when we mess up, we get the blessing that's rightfully his. So that the basis of our togetherness can still be just because. Just because that's what God's like, just because of his grace. And it's good, and it's pleasant. It's eternal. That's the, that's, I mean, that's the big hitch, isn't it? I mean, eventually, it doesn't matter how good your group is, eventually, death is going to break up your group. It doesn't matter what kind of togetherness you have, eventually, death is going to break up your, your group. It's not, not so for the people of God. Not even death can break us apart, at least not for long. At least not for long. It's a new people set apart by faith in him. And what's better than that, because when you look at the Beatitudes, when it says, you know, blessed are those who, who mourn, for they will be comforted. Is that only in heaven? Now, do you have to wait for heaven for that, for that comfort? No, I mean, there's comfort to be had here. Where? In his word and through his spirit and in his people. I mean, his people is where he, 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 he executes his promises. It's where he, he answers prayer. It's where he ministers to people when we walk in obedience. When we walk in obedience. When I obey the command on my life, to love you, that's how God reaches out through me, through his spirit, through his commands, and ministers to you. Unity is, is through unity, through, through obedience, we reach into eternity and bring back the blessing that's there to the here and now. I mean, think about what's going to make heaven heaven. I mean, the thing that's going to make heaven heaven is you know, the presence of God and the rule of his reign, right? He's going to be there, and he's going to govern. But I mean, what's the kingdom of God? It's a group of people who have the spirit in them, and the rule of God's reign. We obey him. So you have the two things that make heaven heaven here right now. And it's not heaven, but isn't it better than what we have? It's good and it's pleasant. What you have in God's people, unity is a, a window. Togetherness is a window into a world that is coming. When you see God's people doing this well, you're seeing more than just right now. You are looking through right now into a world that's absolutely coming. And it's not philosophical. It's not abstract. It's not hypothetical. It's not some pipe dream of, you know, some kind of utopia. It's historical. It's coming. And the resurrected Christ was a preview of it and proof that it's coming. A place where we enjoy God and we work and we live and we play in his presence and his perfect presence forever. And this is the gospel. This is, the, this is the, the, the hope that bands us together, that makes us the people. It's what sustains a people. And it leaves absolutely no room to be naive or to be cynical. No, you know, naive, it doesn't leave any room for, to be naive because it tells you what people are like. It admits what people are like. And so sometimes, you know, you have people who come into church, they come to Christ, and they join the church, and they get in this people, and they think, oh, man, I found this group. I found this people. You know, it's going to be good, and I'm never going to be hurt again. I'm never going to be betrayed. <laughs> no, you know, it's going to happen. <laughs> you know, we, we, if you haven't experienced it yet, we just haven't gotten to you. you know, it's coming. But the gospel leaves no room for that because it, it tells you exactly what people are like. They're going to let you down. That's why you need to sink your hope in Christ and not them. And it leaves absolutely no room to be cynical because the root of cynicism, the thing that's going to make you, I mean, it's just going to plunge you into despair and hopelessness faster than anything else is this thought. They'll never change. Some form of that thought in the back of your brain. He'll never change. She will never change. And the gospel says, change nothing. That person will be, if they are in Christ, transformed. Even if only subtly here on that day, soon and very soon, completely. And you too. 
and you're going to spend eternity loving and enjoying each other. So you might as well start now. What's so exciting, what's so good and pleasant about God's people when they're unified is that there we experience God as he reaches out to minister to and through us. And there we begin to return to that place that we're homesick for, that garden, that, that mountain, that city. Or we, we love and enjoy our father and our brothers and our sisters forever. How good. How pleasant. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these things. They are, they are too good for us to even really understand. But what we do understand is good and it's pleasant. We thank you for your patience with us and that even though you've provided this place for togetherness where we can experience you, where you reach out and touch our lives and use us to touch other people's lives, to priest and to provide, even though you've created this group, this people for such great purposes, that we don't always do what we need to do to advance that togetherness. Sometimes we get in the way of that with our disobedience our unforgiveness. And Father, we thank you for your patience with us. We thank you for your patience with us. We thank you for Christ and the cross, for sending your son to take the curse that we deserve so that we can have his blessing. I pray that that hope, the hope that is there in Christ, the hope that's there in eternity with you, will absolutely be the driving force behind how we engage with people and how we interact with people. I pray that you would fill us up with your spirit and give us the ability to do that. And in this time of response, I pray that you would just fill this room, fill this group with your spirit. Help us to be honest with each other. Help us to be honest with ourselves to see where we're missing this and how we need to respond in light of this. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.